Hello and welcome to the Think Peace Podcast, where peace crosses the mind, the show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we are talking about historical trauma, breaking the cycles of harm and division, and creating a vision of a shared humanity. Our guest today is Dr. Corey Henderson. He is a doctor of public health. His research is rooted in social and behavioral sciences with an emphasis on historical trauma's influence on the health of African Americans. He has a background in information technology, qualitative research, health policy, and public health. He believes that healing is possible for every human being that acknowledges injury. Inasmuch as healing is a process, it is a process to restore health, complete and holistic. Welcome to the Think Peace podcast. I'm so happy to have you here with us this morning. So to start out, could you let us know a little bit about who is Dr. Henderson? What brought you to this point of interest in trauma, historical trauma, and public health, how all these pieces have fit together uh, through your journey in life? Yeah, so first of all, thank you for allowing me this opportunity uh, to share some of the insights that I've gained over my life course. And I think it's important to start with who am I is based on where I come from. My family is a family born out of two struggles of poverty. On my grandfather's side, my father's side, uh, he had lived on a farm with 20 other children, siblings, his parents, and my great-grandfather having went from, and I did this research, to discover that my great-grandfather actually lived with his father-in-law. And you see him in the census about 1910, 1920, and then he appears about 1930, and he buys land. And this is in North Carolina. And it's like, you see him go from struggling to do this manual work, and he's a laborer. And then on the census, he's a homeowner, but he also has land. And the land went from $300 to $500 on the 1940 census. And I see someone who is growing in their ability to kind of live the American dream, but at the same time has a lot of children. And what I begin to discover there is he had to figure out how would I survive in this environment and at the same time, make the best of it with what resources I had. So they say he was very stern. He was very mean. But what he did was he put the children to work. In the 1940 census, I see his first wife and he really living together, but having children that have already left because they were older. But he pulls my grandfather out of school at third grade. And he's about eight years old and makes him work on a farm. And the story goes that many of the young men had to do that, and the women also were allowed to go a little further. But that's the last my grandfather ever describes, who's now deceased, that he had a third grade education. So around 16, 17, because of the cruelty, he arrived in Baltimore City, and he lied about his age. He was able to get a job uh, driving trucks, and um, he, met my great, he met my grandmother, and they married, and they had a family. Well, one day someone lied and said that he stole money, from the truck delivery that he did in Washington, D.C. And from this point, the story gets worse because my father, being the second child, grew up in poverty where he had three elementary schools because once they lied and said my grandfather stole money, 
he lost his job. So he struggled for the rest of my, my father's life. When my grandfather passed away a few years ago, my father had found records that my grandmother had kept. My, my dad describes going to court, being dressed up, about five of them. He would take his whole family. And my grandfather was fighting this, losing his job. And he always describes his hatred towards white people. And, and I just didn't understand it. And it began to make me wonder what happens to us to make us have a certain understanding of how we see the world. Well, the story gets better because my great, well, my grandmother, who had an eighth grade education, she stopped school to take care of her, her, her grandmother, who was dying and was sick in Pumphrey, uh, Maryland. And they say my grandfather had money on her side, and he also was a uh, World War I veteran. So he had built up this living in Baltimore. So now you have my grandfather coming from North Carolina, my grandmother having been here from Baltimore, her family were once slaves on the Eastern Shore and they converge together and start a family. But it's nothing but struggle. My, my father describes having to crawl underneath the house to get dead rats. And they had the first few houses had outhouses. This is the 1950s, the early 60s. And what we discover with my grandmother's eighth grade education is she actually wrote a brief to the Supreme Court. Hmm. And they fought this thing all the way up to the highest levels. And they want to actually EEOC case. I haven't been able to find it, but my dad said some of the records show that there's a case out there that is precedent. Henderson versus, I think it's uh, the organization, and it's a case of discrimination. And it began to set the tone for why my father stressed and my grandfather stressed that we needed to know our history. We needed to know who we came from and why we came from. When I did my research on historical trauma, I discovered all of this and my father pressed the fact that we could not live off of principle alone. It was so heart-wrenching because my dad said that he discovered that they offered my, great, my grandfather $500,000 settlement. And my grandfather said, I'm not taking that money because it's a million-dollar case. So they grew up in poverty because my grandfather's principles were not allowed for him to bend at all for the family he wanted to take care of and protect he found himself stuck in the idea of, I have been mistreated and, and, and abused, and I saw the world in such a negative light that it hurt everyone around me. And he passed away. So that kind of sets the tone for when I began to do my research, it became very personal. I interviewed people, and I had to look at myself. I grew up not liking my mother. Uh, my mother and father had been married 48 years. I loved my mother deeply, but I didn't like her. Oftentimes, I'd see my mother and father argue growing up, and I didn't understand why she was so mean. And my dad would come in from work. My dad provided for us. My mother, she uh, often was sick, and she slept a lot And because she was ill. I didn't know any of this. I'm a kid. Well, my mother had my older brother in 1972. She had me in 1977. She had a stillborn girl in 1978. She had my little brother and sister who were twins in 1979. And I began to understand as I got older, losing a child in 1978 and then still wanting a girl and getting her pregnant again right after that. For three years, my mother was pretty pregnant. But the pain of losing a child and having a one-year-old child at home who was not breastfed, so I never got the closeness to my mother that a child usually gets. She was also in mourning too, because I've lost two children at 17 and 18. And, and I just begin to process all of this 
as I begin to discover my own historical trauma, what happened to my parents' parents begin to pass down into me. So I perceived that my mother didn't love me. My mother didn't like me. So I ran away from home. I was a, I was a, I was a smart kid. They wanted to skip me in school. Eighth grade, I begin class, and the teacher said, we're going to do algebra one this year. I said, I already did that over the summer. He said, oh, listen, we don't have time for your jokes, Mr. Henderson. Just sit back. I said, no, how about this? I'll talk to you after class. So I went, this? this was eighth grade. And I said, this is my proposition to you. I propose that I'll take the test that you give at the end of the quarter, the first day of every quarter. If I pass, I don't have to take your class. Well, we don't have anywhere to put you. Because I was already doing algebra two and trigonometry. I took the SAT in sixth grade. And he said, there's no way. Now, I went to Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth. And what they taught us was bringing all this together. Here's your syllabus. Here's your book. I'm sitting there in seventh grade summer, the beginning of seventh grade summer, and the end of sixth grade after I took the SAT. And they say, oh, man, you're really smart and blah, blah, blah. And we're sitting there in this, like, nerd uh, incubator. And... <laughs> They come in, and, and actually the gentleman now who was actually in the city council in Baltimore City was one of my teachers. He was a student at Hopkins at the time. And he set the syllabi down, set the book down, and he left the room. About five minutes later, he came back in the room, and he said, how much did you guys get done? And we were like, we're waiting on the teacher. And the best lesson that life taught me, that he taught me, was the teacher is sitting in the, in the chair that you're in. Wow. And they taught us how to teach ourselves. And all of this comes together with historical trauma to begin to show that I had power over my outcomes. I didn't just have to sit there in class in eighth grade and become um, silly because I was bored. I needed to really advocate for myself. So I began to advocate. That year in eighth grade, I got a 99 every quarter. And the last quarter, I kind of messed up. I got a 97. So, and that's taking the test the first day of the quarter, and I, they would just sit me in the library um, during that class period. But it, it proceeds further that all of this comes together, that I'm really smart, but I ran away from home at 16 and lived on the streets. I was homeless, just going through all of this struggle. So my grandfather on my mother's side, now I'm talking about my mother, th this woman that I loved, I, I, I endured I, I endured so much with so much of my heart, I tried to win her attention. I became a class clown because I was seeking attention from anywhere I could get it. And, and I, I, I dealt with a lot of women and I, I, and I didn't understand like why I have so much talent and so much ability, but I'm getting caught up in all these things that are really uh, physical. And, and all I wanted was someone to touch me and, and tell me that they love me. And it went back to the time period that I said I was a baby. And I began to understand all of this pain from their lives now being poured into me through parts I couldn't even understand. And it seemed like it was something I couldn't put my finger on. Well, some of the things I often talk to you about is the genetic pain, the, the things that were passed down in my epigenetics I hadn't even lived through, but I felt it. I couldn't describe it. And when I, be, when I became able to put it into words, I brought both of the family ideas and struggles together to realize that the grandfather who I love so much, this is my mother's grandfather, who took me off the street. It was a process that the world, that the energy of the world was setting me up for because he didn't know that when he was cleaning ships as a black man, not able to do anything but be a cook and a ship cleaner in the military, that he was inhaling asbestos. 
So he had asbestos in his lungs and he smoked unfiltered camels. He came from uh, Kilmarnock, Virginia and found his way to Baltimore. He met my grandmother, he voting young woman, my grandmother's family on, on my mother's side, they came from South Carolina. And my great grandfather on her side was one of the first blacks to buy a home in West Baltimore. I found his house in the wards that were uh, segregated and he had a corner store. And he, he, he and his brother said, if you guys can make it here, talking about the family from down South, we'll help you get settled. They poured money into the churches. They did things to survive. And she grew up with what you would consider a little more wealth. I mean, they had a piano in their home. And all of this comes forward to about 2015, 2016. I'm finishing my dissertation and I'm studying all of this and I'm ignoring my own pain and, and, and I'm still frustrated and, and God's calling me to ministry, but I can't understand why. It's like, I've done all these things. I've tried to mentor, help people, but I can't figure out who I am. So I sat down one day and began to write about myself and I called myself out. I said, Corey, you're a liar. Corey, you, you've cheated. On, on your wife, Corey, you, you're better than this, but you got to see who you truly are. And let's backtrack from what you've described yourself as and the painful things that I have tears in this journal that I begin to write. And let's resolve this so we can see the other side of it. And in the process, what I discovered was I talked to my mom and my mother, she would always ignore me. She didn't want to talk about anything. So I went to therapy and I said, listen, I don't know what the problem is. Me and my wife were about to break up. This is my second marriage. My children, they're doing well in school, but my family is just all over the place. I got accepted into school to go to uh, get a, a master's. I already have a doctorate, but to go get a master's in, in divinity. And I denied it. I said, I can't. I have to get my home in order. and I have to get my life in order first. And, and the Bible tells us that we have to be very careful letting the skilled do what they're not willing to do enforcing them to do things because they're going to mess things up. And, and I was skilled, but I really wasn't willing. I was kind of forcing myself. And then we have to be very careful of the willing who are unskilled and letting them do things just because they have the passion to do it. So I needed to take a step back and gain skill and willingness to move forward in my life. I went to my mom and I said, we need to talk. About 2017, 2018, I graduated school. I'm celebrating getting a doctorate, but I still feel broken. All of that comes together. Early 1900s, late 1800s, I've done my family research back to about 1790. All of the pain that everything, everyone has experienced and struggled through, there's a, a color divide in our own family. Light skin versus dark skin. I'm middle tone. My mother's about your complexion. All of them have light eyes. My eyes are light brown. But what I begin to discover is the pain of that trauma from the past all converged at that one moment. And I said, Ma, you have to talk to me. Every time I talk to you, blow me off. You try to like cause an argument and run away. What happened in your life? And she began to tell me, my dad had already kind of poured out and, and shared with me many things. And I knew his story. My mother told me hers. Her brother at 11 years old died um, on the back of a truck. And he was skating on the back of a pickup truck in Baltimore. My grandfather had, they were living eight in one house. And it was actually a house, but they only had one room in a three-story house. And this is on Hanover Street in Baltimore. One side was black, one side was white. The black side had a church, it was a black church. They had stores, they were black stores. On the other side of the street, <laughs> you had all white churches, 
stores, you didn't cross one side of the street or the other. Wow, one street. That segregated. Yeah. And all of this came from people don't know. Edgar Allan Poe was actually in Baltimore City, one of the first to support this when he was in the city council, to support the idea of the 50% rule. If one side of the street is 50% or 51% white, then all the blacks need to move on the other side of the street. <laughs> we, we, we will not live the same race or the same um, side of the street. It, it, it was silliness. And my grandfather, having come through this struggle and beginning to have a family and make it on my mom's side now, I'm describing, and, I, and I'll bring all this together to, to get you to the, where I'm at and why it's so emotional for me. He went back to Virginia to get his sister, who was dark-skinned, because my mother's grandmother, my great-grandmother, left her dark-skinned daughter in Virginia and brought her lighter daughter here. Mm-hmm. And he went back to get his sister. They all lived together. She went to a school that was like, it was segregated. This is still around after Brown versus Board of Education. And you, you have this struggle in the family around race. And at the same time, you have a struggle in the street around race and in the community. And you see all of this coming together and converging upon now, they've now rented a home in, in West Baltimore. My grandfather's driving trucks on my mother's side too. So they got two truck drivers and his son dies on the back of a truck. He cannot bring himself to drive a truck ever again. They go through the worst poverty because now he's not working anymore and the depression of losing your son. So he was skating on the back of the tractor trailer. He said they would grab the back of the truck and the truck stopped. And he didn't know that my uncle was back there and he fell and the truck backed up and crushed him. And my grandmother couldn't move. And this is my grandmother whose family on my mother's side came to Baltimore from South Carolina. They were doing well, but she lost relatives during the tuberculosis outbreak in the black community. Well, it was actually in, in the country. But what they did was they tied tuberculosis to being black. They called it the black, um, the black lung disease. They said it was called the lung block. There were whole quarters in blocks where the police, the ambulance, the health departments, nobody would go in the black community in Baltimore. It's a great book called Infectious Fear, um, how it, it caused a division to the narrative of race that, oh, black people, they bring dirt, they, they're just... And it was actually because people were living amongst each other in small dwellings, a bunch of people, and it was an air disease. But the idea that all of this led to this brokenness that came into my life. I had nothing to do with the 1900s. I was born in 1977. How is all this affecting me? Well, having the conversation with my mother in 2017, 2018, she finally divulged to me that the grandfather that I looked up to, who died from cancer, that wouldn't let anyone take him anywhere or touch him but me, that I got close to, it was because all of that converged on me being there for him in his last moments. We moved my grandmother with my aunt. She, my grandmother wound up dying uh, two years ago from uh, she, just the trauma in her life. My, uncle, my other uncle died. He was a drug addict his whole life. Lost his arm on the train track. So all that she felt began to converge in her own mind. And she had Alzheimer's. Um, it started with dementia and it got worse and didn't know who anyone was. But when I came around, she would just smile and she would calm down. Couldn't remember my name, but she could feel the, the idea that somebody familiar was in the room. Mm-hmm. And I began to connect that with what was I feeling inside my mother's womb 
that I didn't see, I didn't experience, I didn't hear, I didn't know at the time. But as a, a embryo, I was feeling when my mother's heartbeat slowed down when she was around her family. I was feeling that when she was around her dad, there was a certain level of frustration and, and, and love there, but still this, this conflict. So she began to tell me in 2017, 2018, that what I was beginning to perceive and feel about my mother was all wrong. My mother grew up where her father used to beat her mother. And my dad's father used to beat his mother. And it, it changed everything in my life. And what I began to discover was that my mother wasn't mean to my dad. What she shared with me was, she said to me, I was not going to let your dad do to me what my dad did to my mother. And if he even looked like he was going to say or do anything, I attacked him. My dad never called my mother her name. He's never put his hands on my mother. So we only saw half of it. And we saw my dad always defending himself. And he would take me, my older brother, my little brother, and we would take rides and do things. And he would tell us stories and laugh. And we would just have the men's day. And my mom and sister would sit at home. And he often would say that his father beating his mother, he never wanted to see a woman treated like that. Mm -hmm. I always looked up and respected my dad but I didn't understand my mother's story because she never told us. And at that point, it all made sense. Right. I had perceived that my mother was someone that she wasn't. I had perceived that I could look up to my dad with this mean woman right. that I didn't like, that I loved, but I wanted all this attention and affection from, was just really trying to resolve her own pain, right. her own struggles. And historical trauma became so real for me because so many people are living that daily. They've never asked themselves why. They've never asked themselves, how did I get here? They just live every day and respond to things subconsciously. The subconscious has taken over their lives, that they don't even know why they make the decisions that they make. But they try to use solutions from the past to solve problems in the present. Mm -hmm. Whatever she did to survive then, whatever my great-grandfather did to survive on the farm, they brought that with them. My grandfather was cruel. He was mean. He, they say he was fly. He would leave on Friday. My dad tells the story one time. They were waiting. They were excited. Daddy was bringing food home. He came home. He was drunk. He was dressed up. He had went out. He forgot. So that night, they went to be hungry. And in the pain of all of that, my dad turned it around and said, education is going to be your way out. I will never do anything but give you all stability. My dad is about stability because he had so much instability. It's like we have a choice of either following the direction of the chaos or deciding to balance it with entropy and have some organized chaos. And all of that comes together why historical trauma is so important and, and so relevant to me is because I want people to know that there's nothing wrong with any of us. Mm -hmm. We just need to know how we resolve the pain of the past for a future that is more understanding, more loving, and more noting that everyone has a story, but many of our stories, we haven't taken the time to deal with the pain and, and, and understand why we make the decisions we make. So in, in finality here, in this part of the question, I married two women who were both kind of, they were both like my mother. They were 
uh, frustrated. They had dealt with their own, they saw abuse in their own lives, in their own homes, and couldn't figure out how, like, what did I pull into my life? I love them both. Uh, my, my ex-wife is the mother of my children, and I love my wife. And, and I, I praise God for everything her parents and her family's been through, even though everyone she's known. Because had those things not happened, I would not have met her. But what I've discovered is I was trying to heal my own life through the people that I was meeting. Mm. My brothers, both married women that have same uh, temperaments and personalities as my mother. So how did me and my brothers, both, all three of us, <laughs> marry the same type of people that like to sleep like my mom, that like to you know shop and be cute and... We, we saw something in our mother that we didn't even realize we were also seeking in, in, in the women that we love. And my, and my sister being home with my mother, hearing these stories about um, love and you know, hearing both sides of the story, we didn't get both sides often. My sister married someone like my dad. <laughs> it, we, it, it is weird, my, her husband's very quiet. He likes to relax at home. He doesn't care about running around. He, he just wants to work and provide stability for his family. And that blew my mind. It just hit me about a year ago. We all were just trying to figure out and resolve what we saw as normality in our life as children, how we maintained that throughout our adulthood. Because sometimes the shift from what we consider normal is too much to bear. So we just seek it even going going um, older as a as an adult so my wife she she loves the fact that i work i provide stability and the fact that i keep pouring into my family and my children because she lost her father at 10. so it, it's all of this that began to help me see that we really can help each other love we can help each other heal if we can all face the trauma of our past yeah, that's a very powerful story, uh, Corey, and also how you describe the reality and the lived experience, the human connections and how things play forward in families generation after generation. And I love the point you made during the story where you, where you said as you had learned more about you know, epigenetics and some of the scientific ways that they're looking at how trauma can be passed along genetically. You brilliantly and beautifully described the reality of it. And you had that, that felt sense. You, yeah. you, you, there was something there. It was apparent you experienced it. And now scientists are starting to identify what generations of humans have experienced in their lives and knew deep within themselves that this was what was going on. That's, that's, um, that's a, I was reading something that there's a, a letter that a lady wrote. Her name is Rilke, R-I-L-K-E. And she's writing a letter kind of describing the existential question of how do we exist? And, and she's talking to a young man. And in her letter, she says, <clears throat> there's something deep inside you that is calling you. And unfortunately, you can't describe it to anyone. And, and, and I, I, I really... I came to recognize that that's all of us. That there's something in us. We, you can't describe it. I thought, and I try to simplify it down from something complex to something simple. And this is from my mathematical mind and my scientific mind to say, if it works with small numbers, then the equation will work with large numbers. 
So let's just test it with ones, twos, and zeros before we start trying to put 300,000, 333, or, or some other weird number in there. And it hit me that in her statement, she says, what you will experience is first felt more than before it's what is known. Mm. And you just described it so simply and, and to say that we all have something deep inside us that we need to ask questions about and be okay with the answers. And that's the hard part because we've already decided what the outcome should be when we ask for something. And existentialism really goes back to the idea that we're existing because there's something bigger than us calling us to something else. And the word exists comes from the word existere or sister, which is Latin, that means to come out. So when you're being called, you're being asked to come out of where you are, which means I have to leave a present place and find myself somewhere else. And then the word X means to step back from that place to kind of step out of yourself and see yourself. So not only am I being called out, that I have to move in a direction of where my life is taking me, but I also have to step back and pay attention to it and be aware of that call. Now, who can call you bigger than somebody or something or a world in a cosmos bigger than you? Now, me being a Christian, I believe it's God. Whomever believes whatever it is, it has to be bigger than you because it's only mental health issues that will cause you to think that you could call yourself. <laughs> you, a call comes from outside. Now, there's an internal calling, but it's responding to something that is ringing inside of you. And I'll close on this statement here about that. She says that what is felt more than what is known really is the example of how you can connect with something and just be okay with the answers is really coming to mind with hate nothing. Just love every experience, live it, understand it, because each of our experiences is different. And to accept the call means that we walk out and we stay at that attention to what is calling us. And it's hard. Because all of these other muddied waters, like historical trauma and the past, what I discovered is most people don't want to resolve the trauma because they've grown up loving, listening to, or admiring the person who taught them the trauma. And if my grandmother told me that, hey, you, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that, and then I say, well, grandma might not have been right. I, I instantly step back from that, most people, because I feel like I'm questioning my grandmother, not the statement. So I don't want to disrespect grandma. So I don't, I don't go against what grand grandma said. All we do is eat this. So I'm not eating anything other than what my grandmother cooks. I'm not eating anything other than what we had. And I know many people like that. Mm -hmm. And then it goes to the question of the caller. So if the caller is God and you feel like, well, the word of God says this. And, and I was taught that the Bible says that you don't question God you're questioning the statements that were taught to you, the embedded theology. But then you say, well, I, I, if I question those questions or those, those statements, I'm questioning God. That's disrespecting God. But God wants us to build a bigger tent. The only way we become more inviting is changing the questions and opening the opportunity for all of us to be in the same room. We can decide power by what we say, how we say it, and who's in the room and who's in the space. And God wants us to have a bigger tent as humanity, as you said, connecting back to, the, to our Adam or that thing that has first established all of us. Because we, we really all do come from two parents. We're all family. 
Yeah, and you know, it's interesting when you were describing that, there's, and this also goes back to what you were saying about how one might replicate um, in a marriage or relationship, past relationships, because there's the fear, the concern. First of all, that may be what's normal. There's no other sense of that type of relationship or something different, even if one has a sense that it should be different, is, could be scary to change. So you go back to what you know. So I'm curious if we kind of look at this, if there's a calling or a sense that there's something else that could be there. If, if one steps outside of wherever that calling or that belief, wherever that comes, whatever one's belief system is, yet you're the human in reality right now, and you may be in pain, and it may be scary, and you know we're wired for survival, so we tend to do the things that kept us safe in the past, you know, reactively, you know, plug and play, that's what we do. So I'm curious, what have you found through your own struggle and your own looking at the pain and looking at the historical pieces? What are some things that you found helpful or what were those things that kind of changed that perception a little bit to kind of get off this track where even you could see where that track is going. And sometimes we know it's going straight into a wall crash. We do it anyway. What helped to kind of get off that off ramp and go on a different track and even more so pull towards the calling, even if it's like not taking chaos, but just being in managed chaos, all to stay there. But then there's even a higher part to go further. So how does one, how have you found toggling that Mm. in your life? That's a great question. I think for me, what I've discovered is we all have the opportunity to define and describe who we are and what we are. And in order to do that, we have to be okay with coming back to the place of, I really don't get to decide all of the things that happen because I don't live in a vacuum. I live around other people. And if I want people to see me as caring, loving, and acknowledging them, then I have to be caring, loving, and acknowledging them. In The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the author says that we have to begin with the end in mind. I was on a plane one day, and I'm flying to a meeting in um, Flint, Michigan. And I'm reading the book, and it, it, it struck me. Begin with the end in mind. Doesn't make sense. Well, what he said is, if you had a eulogy tomorrow for your life, what would you want people to say? And, and it made me pause and really think about, wow, what would I want my eulogy to say? And it's kind of dark. It's like you're imagining yourself at your own funeral. But we all come to a point in life where our bodies um, come to an end. And my, my question was, what do I want people to say about me? And I had to begin to live that thing out. And it's kind of like Robert Frost. What Robert Frost wrote was, he said that the founding fathers did not believe in the future. They believed it in. Wow. Mm -hmm. And and such a powerful statement was really instrumental in me realizing that my belief has the power to pull into existence what I live. So if I truly believe it, I'm going to live it every day. The, the, the crazy person is the person who has an idea that no one supports. 
So we have to learn how to build a bigger tent. We have to learn how to work with other people. We have to learn how to get followers. There's a YouTube video where they have a guy dancing on a beach. And you're like, it's not the guy dancing that is the uh, most interesting person on the beach. It's the people who get up and dance with him. Because if you just dance by yourself, everybody's going to say, Colette is crazy. I mean, she's out there dancing. There's hardly any music going. But once your son dances with you, your husband dances with you, it becomes a groundswell. And now you got the whole beach dancing. And that's our job, is to get other people dancing with us through this life. Because if we dance alone, you just look crazy. But if we get other people dancing with us, now we have a live dance or a party. And in order for us to have a party in life, we have to find a way to bring other people along. So what changed in me? I've always been one that was inviting. I was always one that understood what it meant to be social. But really, I'm an introvert. Like, I get my power from being alone, meditating, sitting alone with God, studying, reading, and just thinking. And I, I've learned how to survive through being social. I can tell a good joke. I know how to laugh. But those are all survival techniques. But what I discovered was that whether I'm an introvert or extrovert, it has nothing to do with my idea of building this party that we all can enjoy. White, black, purple, green, I don't care who you are, because it's not about race, it's about ethnicity. A, a black man in Texas has a different belief about how America should live, go, or grow compared to a black man in Baltimore City. But a white man in Texas may actually think like the black guy in Texas. And let me realize it had nothing to do with race. Had everything to do with, they're in Texas. Ethnicity. It's, it's oh, my community this, my community that. It, it's, you know, people love to say global. Um, that, that term uh, comes out of the Asian interpretation or theological analysis of God's word, that, that things are global in a sense that we need to consider how other people live. But we also need to think about locally, that global, that, that local connection that I have with my church, my ministry, the people that I love. But still, what's going on in the rest of the world? And that's how we begin to step back from this race idea and heal around the idea that as a people, we all have cultural understanding, which is shared attitudes, values, behaviors, and beliefs based on what we've seen. Now, you create a culture that's separated, segregated, forcibly displaced, mistreated, all because of the color of their skin, then that group of people will begin to believe, think, and act a certain way in response to those policies and those behaviors. But if we all begin to step back from that and say, how do we re-envision this party? How, how do we have a party where everybody's dancing together, not them dancing over there in their corner, them dancing over here in their corner? That's not a party. That's just a bunch of small groups. But if we all come to the middle of the dance floor and, and we can groove to the tune of life and love together, then that's the party that I'm trying to build. So it's, what did I discover? It was truly that we all need each other. We, we need to stop looking for divisiveness, recognize our differences, honor them, love them, and respect them, but hear each other. Respect each other's position and perspective, because if my mother had not given me the opportunity, how would I have reconciled with my pain if I didn't have her here to explain to me that my grandfather never told me that he hit my grandmother? That, who, who would have told me? So that would have been a gap. And I've been thinking about this story that I want to write. And maybe you and I should write a book. It's called The Missing 
the missing apology, how many people are waiting for the person that hurt them in the past to come tell them that they're sorry? Building the tent, having the party. How, how do we get to a place where we can dance with other people that have hurt us? And that separates out the party. So how can we bigger, build a bigger party? We all got to figure out what this pain is that we're feeling that's more felt than known. I can't describe it. Mm -hmm. I feel it, but I don't know it. And, and very quickly, I think the answer to that, going back to the simplicity, is the chairs that we're sitting in, someone had to envision them before they designed them. We have to envision a future that we want and believe it into existence before it actually happens. No, and I, and I love that idea of the tent, and I love the idea of envisioning and, and envisioning, as you said, the end state that one wants to, to see and reimagining the current reality and pulling that forward. And I'm curious your thoughts and your experiences on when we, you know, we all, when there's pain, there's anger. And it often works together and hurt manifests in different, that could be, you know, I, I could be destructive in a relationship or I don't want to talk with you or you're the cause of it. And there's just a lot of that energy and the space that make, that can make it challenging in that tent to dance together. You know, I don't want to dance with you. And a lot of that's hurt and anger. How have you experienced in your own communities in, you know, in your own self and families, what is, what have you seen as how one brings in all the different groups? Some are in different spaces and somehow we all want to dance together, but there are blocks, human blocks within our own systems of anger and frustration. And there's a place for that. And it's, and it's a, it's a honored part to be to have the anger righteous anger how does one work with that and how have you found that in your experience i'll just say that you are full of the best questions i think i don't know if you're looking at a wall with all these great questions <laughs> but these questions are deep i'm going to need some scuba gear um <laughs> i think the answer to that is about power there, there are three types of power power over um, power with or power from. And anger can sometimes get us to a place where we feel like we have to have power over someone um, because they're trying to take power from us. But how do we have power with when we're frustrated, when we're tired, when we're, we're really worn down by the idea that I'm losing power? Because often that's what happens. It's, it's, it's a power dynamic. It's you're not going to tell me what to do. You're not going to do that. You're not going to. And unfortunately, people can do whatever they want. But it's really all of us going back to a place of teaching each other that people can say and do whatever they want in your life. It's how you respond to it that makes the difference. We can't tell people, you can't say that to me. She can say that to you. And she did. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond? You can respond in kind. And it's a never-ending circle because who gets to decide when does it stop? I mean, Martin Luther King, he, he talked about from a biblical perspective, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, everyone's blind and nobody can eat meat. Um, he didn't say that. Uh, but <laughs> it, it's the idea that it doesn't stop until everyone's blind. And I think someone has to be the mature one in the room to take a step back and acknowledge 
that that person's pain is real. It, 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 it's, it's, it's made up in a sense that the first thing that happens to us is an emotion. It's the internal feeling we have. But then we then take that feeling and we respond in an external way to try to justify why we responded based off of the emotion. It then causes a chain reaction in our life or in the person or the people around us. And then we respond back to it with the next emotion and the same feeling that creates a circle that never ends. Right, right. You justify, I feel like you just, I appreciate that. But maybe you should be uncomfortable for a moment and allow yourself to settle in your uncomfortable. Being comfortable in the uncomfortable actually allows for you to process. And I think that in a world that's moving so fast, I believe that the coronavirus and the public health emergency is causing all of us to pause for a moment. Mm-hmm. Where before we would be all running around so busy, we would be doing this recording in the same room. We, we, we you know, I have to drive down there and you have to drive up here. I got to jump on a plane. It's forcing all of us to find a way to be still. Being comfortable in the uncomfortable. The answer is right in front of us. Are we too busy to acknowledge that we all are experiencing the same thing? It's it's a pandemic. It means that it affects everyone. Until we recognize that your rage, your pain, your anger, racism, discrimination, um, sexism, uh, the feminist movement, uh, 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 segregation, uh, all of these things affect all of us. When one part of the body hurts, the rest of the part of the body hurts. The rest of the body hurts. It's, we have all lost our connection to humanity. It's me versus you. It's a zero sum game. If you're doing well, I gotta tear you down because you're taking from what I could have had. They're printing money, people. They, they, they literally, if they need, we're running deficits at a federal level. Like when we need, someone will find a way to get it. God says simply, what you worried about? You've always eaten. If I feed the birds of the air and they don't even work, I mean, they fly around and then you, you can grow food. You can go fish. You can, if we take care of what we have and realize we're all connected, not me versus you, then we can understand that that person hasn't, hasn't gotten the understanding of what anger and rage truly comes from. Rage is a great thing because if I rage at someone cheating on me, it teaches other people in the room, uh, you might not want to cheat. But it, it, it can actually move in that space. But if you're angry, like you say, it, it's, it's uncontrolled. It's, it's not righteous. It also teaches people in the room, uh, I don't know if I could trust that person. So people love to talk about gossip. And um, that there's a great book called Sapiens. And he says that gossip is a healthy thing. We have just lost the understanding of what gossip truly means. Everybody wants to be ultra-religious. I don't gossip about people. I gossip about the rain. Before I leave my house, I make a judgment. Is it cold out? Do I need to grab a coat? The, the, the weather never says, you judging me. The, the, the rain, do I need an umbrella? I'm going to stop raining over there because you're judging me. We are, we've all become ultra-sensitive. We've become soft. And we've become unforgiving. Mm -hmm. The truth is, the only way we're ever going to get back to anything of humanity and connection is to realize we all are in this together. 
So the, the, the Sabian analogy to gossip is, if I loan you $20 and you never pay me back, when me, you, and Annalisa and a few of our friends are hanging out and we're talking and you say, girl, you know, uh, I need $20. When I see Annalisa later that day, I say, you know, I loaned her $20. She never paid me back. That gossip protects her. Mm -hmm. So now you owe two people $20. But if I say nothing and I let her loan you $20 and never come back to check you on the fact you never paid me back, I've now created a mess. Because when Annalisa finds out that you never paid me back and I never told her that you didn't pay me back, she's going to be angry at you for not paying her back and me for not warning her. We're all connected. We're all in this together. So we need to drop the terminology and get back to love. That was beautiful, Corey. I so appreciate you. And I so, I so appreciate our conversations and getting it back to something so basic. Simple, we know not easy, but so basic and simple. And not, not overcomplicate. I remember something when you said that years ago when I was working in Libya, and it was right after the fall of um, Gaddafi and the country was putting itself back together. And in uh, Mizrata, there was a wall and painted on the wall, it said, don't complicate the transition. And I love that because all these experts are coming in with all, I'm not saying intellectual, you know, you're, you have a PhD, you know, we, you know, we have advanced degrees, intellectual and studies critical. We, we know this, but it's all not going to be found within this part of our, our body. And it was basically saying, don't complicate the transition. Let's get our relationships back together. Let's remember we're Libyans and let's pull together these divisions that were, were, were being um, brought forth in the, in the country, remember who we are. And that just really struck me. It was like coming to the human, the heart, the soul, and bringing that piece together. That, that right there, I woke up this morning and I said to myself, with the work we're trying to do um, to heal racial tensions, for me, it's bigger than that. Mm -hmm. it, it's really how do we connect each other back to a place where we re realize that we're all in this together. Um, because once we start down a road of isolation, separation, putting each other in buckets, where does it ever stop? I mean, it, it's, I love when people say, oh, you know, as a black man, I said, well, wait, look, and, and I don't want Sesame Street to get upset, but racism is like the cookie monster. You, you ever remember how the cookie monster would take all the cookies? Everywhere. He never had enough, right? And that's how racism is. If we keep feeding it, it it's never going to get enough. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a monster in a sense that how, how do I know where blackness begins and ends? <laughs> like I said, my mother is your complexion. It, it's, I mean, is she not considered part of the black tribe? It, it, it's that silliness that the idea of we're overcomplicating things by adding lines of division instead of erasing the lines to create inclusion. And that for me is the whole point of this. I want my life's legacy to be that I love so much, that I believed in a love so big mm -hmm. that it was impossible to reach. Mm -hmm. What's the point in living if we don't have goals that, are, that, that need to be fulfilled by the next generation? If we set goals that we often complete here, 
What do we leave for our children and our children's children's children to fulfill? It says in Psalm 137 in the Old Testament, it talks about the idea that they were in Babylonian exile. The Babylonians that came in and they, uh, they, they had captured them, and these are the southern Israelites in the scriptures. And in the scripture, he, he's talking about the idea the psalmist wrote in Psalm 137. He's saying, you know, I'm sitting here and they're asking me to sing them songs from when I was in Zion. And Zion is considered like the center of where God's spirit would have been, Jerusalem. And as they're sitting there thinking, they're like, I can't. I can't sing songs from when I was in um, Zion. And, and as you read further, you begin to ask yourself, why? Well, because the songs I used to sing was always when I was the one capturing people. <laughs> now that I'm a captive, I can't sing those same songs of joy. Yeah, yeah. And he then goes further, he said, remember. And you begin to understand as you read um, Bible history and, and, and Bible archaeology and theological interpretations and analysis. That that's really where the, the book of what we know now as the Bible, uh, Biblia, the, the many books come together that they compiled and started writing down and, and bringing all their stories together. Because the idea was remember. Mm-hmm. Why remember? Because historical, we, we I, I heard uh, Michael Eric Dyson say yesterday, we are the United States of amnesia. We only want to remember what works for us. But remembering allows us to learn from our pain of the past, the mistakes we've made, mm-hmm. so that we can prepare for a present that is livable and plan a future that is going to endure. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, has been my, it's been my legacy and my message. We need to remember who we are, who we are, who we used to be, and who we want to be. That's beautiful. A beautiful call to action. Thanks so much, Corey, for for joining me this morning um, for Think Peace podcast. It's been such a pleasure and an honor speaking with you. So thank you. Thank you very much. And um, thank peace. That says it all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week for the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. Please visit our website, www.thinkpeacepodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to tune in next week. And remember to think peace.